0: Have you ever missed an important email because of your overloaded inbox? Wading through forests of unread emails, tons of newsletters, and follow-ups to find the one is a very frustrating experience. Seeing the number of unread emails growing every day is stressful, and taking the time to go through everything is a waste. So the folks at Clean Email came up with a cleaning solution and it is a real game-changer. First. Clean Email organizes all of your emails into smart views, like social notifications, newsletters, unread emails, emails from project management tools, emails from dead ends, top senders, and on and on. This way, with Clean Email, you can quickly take care of those thousands of emails in your mailbox, marking them as read, archiving them, labeling and moving them around by hundreds or thousands at once. And then you can set up auto-clean filters to automatically archive or move emails around as they arrive, For example, one feature I really like is the ability to auto-archive emails as they become older than a couple of months, and use smart unsubscriber to keep your mailbox clean from newsletters and noisy marketers. Clean email was designed with your privacy and security of your data in mind. Since they are in the business of providing a great service in exchange for a fair fee, they guarantee to not sell or analyze your data. They are verified by Yahoo and Google and support all email providers out there. Visit clean.email forward slash productivity and get 50% off the five accounts annual package. Again, that's clean.email forward slash productivity. Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about the book I've been working on. It's called Start Finishing, How to Go from Idea to Done, and it will be released on September 24th, 2019. You may already know that I only really care about productivity because it's how we become our best selves in the world. All of us have gaps between what we think we can be, what we dream we can be, who we want to be, and what shows up day to day. Start Finishing bridges those gaps. The book will give you the tools, mindsets, and practices that help you do the stuff your soul is yearning to do, but that somehow seems eternally out of reach. It also features contributions from my personal friends, colleagues, and teachers, such as Seth Godin, Dan Pink, Laura Vanderkam, Jonathan Fields, Susan Piver, Joshua Becker, James Clear, Chelsea Dinsmore, Serenity Rao, and many more. I'm really proud of this book, and I consider it our book rather than my book, meaning that it would not have happened if it weren't for the amazing connections I've made with the productive, flourishing community over the last 12 years. So, thank you. If you're interested in the book and you want to learn more and maybe pre-order it, check it out at startfinishingbook.com. That's startfinishingbook.com. And now, on to the episode. You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today.
1: But there will come a point where no matter how much self-work you do, your relationship to others may or may not be what's holding you back at that point. Like you change yourself, relative to yourself all you want, but if you don't engage in how you're engaging with other people, then there's gonna be another limiting factor in your life.
0: That was Brian Falchuk, a return guest and the author of the new book, The 50 100 Solution. He returns to the show to discuss how his new book helps us create better relationships. We also jam a bit about the evolution of his body of work from his first book, Do A Day, and the differences in the way his new book and his first book came about. If you're interested in hearing how to create better relationships, or hearing the windy road that can sometimes be the journey between books, listen in. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Brian, thanks so much for joining me again on the Productive Pro- Flourishing Podcast. Um, you were with us with episode 184 when Do A Day came out, and it was really about making really massive change one yep. at a time. And now you're back with a new book that I'm delighted to jump in. So thanks
1: for joining us again. Yeah, it's it's great for me to be back and you were on my show too. So getting your story out.
0: Great, great. I remember that. Um, So many podcasts, so many interviews. And don't say that in
1: a bad way. You just forget who you've said what to Yeah, for Um, sure.
0: This is why you don't lie on the air, people, because it will be public record and you forget that you said it. So just don't do it. That's right. Anyways, um, I would say don't lie in general. That's a weird start. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. So um, one of the things I really like about having repeat guests, especially when they're transitioning or when they produce one book and now they produce another is to sort of tell that story between what where you were then and where you were now and how this book came across. So we're going to break this down into individual pieces. Yeah. What's what's really new and significantly different for you um, between now and last time we talked on 184?
1: Yeah I mean uh, the other side of my professional life is night and day. Like when we talked before, I was in the C-suite of a an insurance company, which some of you might be cringing. Others, of you might be like, "Wow, I, I loved it. It was an amazing company. It was a great job." Um, but you know that that defined a lot of my life. And since then, I've I left that company. I spent time at a startup, and I'm out on my own right now. And I'm doing you know this kind of stuff full time. I'm actually working on a third book. Um, my joke with the other two was that people are like, what's your book about I'm like, it's about insurance. And everyone would laugh. Well, this one actually is. So I need to think about how I'm going to joke about it. But um, yeah, just I, my days are spent very different in a very different way than they were back then.
0: Cool. Well, you should say your next book is about personal development. And That's then they're true. like, oh, it's true. And then it's yeah. about insurance. And they're like, ah, oh, you got me again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all righty. So I'm curious because you've had – You've let the job you've, you're you were in a startup. You've let that. So, what have been some of the inflection points that have helped you navigate those different choices?
1: Yeah, um, I think actually, it's it's the book that we're talking about today is a big piece of that because there are things that I went through between. I mean, not even between this episode and and the last time you had me on. It's really been my whole life, and it came to a head between those two things. Um, just how I relate to other people and like do a day is it's about yourself. It's about your relationship with yourself, how you can overcome your own things, which is super important. And I think that's going to be step one, but there will come a point where no matter how much self-work you do, your relationship to others may or may not be what's holding you back at that point. Like you change yourself relative to yourself all you want, but if you don't engage in how you're engaging with other people, then there's going to be another limiting factor in your life. Um, so that that's effectively what happened with me is I felt very good about my self worth, my sense of where I'm heading, and all that. And yet I would keep having difficulties, and there was always in relation to someone else. And the one that was front and center was with my wife. Um, and so you know we we went through a process, um, still married still working on on things, but I wasn't sure that we were still going to be married. Um, actually, I, there's like a particular weekend where I was like, this is going to be it. Like if, if we both make it out of this weekend alive, like I think that's it. Uh, I was working in Atlanta in the time, like commuting down from Boston. So I'm like, I'm just going to get on the plane and I don't know that like Southwest lets you cancel those flights last minute, no penalty, like maybe that's what happens. I just don't return home. Um, and that's not, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I wanted for my kid. Like I grew up with that and I don't, I think that's an easy way out. Not that it's easy. Um, but there was enough there that I, I wanted to get back. And either way, like we're still going to be around each other. We're still going to be in each other's lives. The relationship's got to get solved, whether you quit on it or not. Um, so all that came to a head. And that was just, That that's really the biggest change that I've faced in my life since then.
0: All righty. And that's really fascinating because People sometimes are curious about how books create themselves or how you yeah. choose to write the next book. And it seems like, well, tell us how and why you chose to write this book.
1: Yeah. Um, so in the in the throes of like trying to deal with our relationship issues, um, I started seeing a, a therapist down in Atlanta Um really just to get coping mechanisms to deal with how my wife was mistreating me like that she wouldn't value me that you know all these her to me kind of negativities and not not that i was doing anything bad like obviously maybe a couple things here or there but generally i'm a great guy and it's it's all her so i just need to learn how not to get worked up or not let it bother me so much and so that's what i went to this therapist for this counselor and um luckily like she's like uh uh-uh. That's not that's not reality. Like, no, dude, it's both of you. It's not just her. And of course, like she's saying the same thing, like, oh, you know, my husband X, Y, Z. And I'm like, I'm all better. I've done all this self work. I'm fine. It's just him. He's just terrible. Um, So we're both saying the same thing about each other. And that's pretty common. Like we tend to see difficult relationship as us versus them. And it's like, we're good. It's all the faults on their side. In the process of working through this, this uh, counselor pointed me to this book. She starts telling me some Buddhist principles. I'm like, this is really interesting. She's like, you should read this book, Open Heart, Clear Mind by Dubdin Chodron. It's to this day the most amazing thing I've ever read. Um, And that, like, I was maybe like a third of the way through it and my mind was just utterly blown. Like she's just introducing you to different the different core principles of Buddhism. It's not preachy. It's just really easy to take in philosophy about how to think about life and how we relate to each other. And the underlying purpose of Buddhism, the intention everyone should have is to reduce suffering. And I'm like, well, it's pretty hard not to agree with that. I don't care what religion you follow or whatever, like, Oh, I don't believe in this piece or I don't, I don't know about karma or reincarnation. Fine. But like, do you wish we all suffered less? If you feel good about that idea, then it's like, I can get behind this. And so I just opened my mind to it. And I, as I'm reading it, I'm finding myself really blown away about my hand in things. And when I had felt really powerless in these fights, like my wife's just being this way to me and there's nothing I can do. And it sucks. Suddenly I'm like, no, there isn't nothing I can do. And even if I don't think I'm at fault, I actually see through what I'm reading, how I might be able to affect a different behavior on her part by giving her a different version of me to, to, you know, to interact with. And that's kind of what I've been waiting for for years is like, at some point she'll just see, that I'm not bad, or she'll just value me, or she'll just whatever. You know, just for me is like, anytime you hear just, watch out, because what you're about to hear is, it's nonsense. Like, can't you just do this? No, it's not that simple. Um, so instead of waiting for her to just value me and be good to me, it's like, maybe there are things I can do materially differently with more purpose and consistency that will start to affect change. And what I realized is, there's no way it couldn't. Like in waiting for her to be better, it's like when is this ever going to happen? Will it ever happen? Maybe we should get divorced because it'll never happen. Well, now what I'm starting to understand is, it's impossible for her not to change. Now we're not in a situation where it's there's no mental health issue, there's no um, substance abuse, there's no violence. Neither of us is cheating on the other one. Like those are much more extreme things that maybe you should split up. You know, like so this is a marriage that. I believe should be fixed and neither of us is in danger from us staying together. So it's like, okay, she can and should change as can. And should I. And so I just decided really early on in this book, I'm like, I'm reading these things. I'm feeling inspired. Why don't I give it a try? And I did. And I was like, I I want to say immediate. It was immediate for me. It wasn't immediate for her, but within a couple of weeks of, just doing things differently. And honestly, I felt much better in the process of being different. Like I wasn't getting as worked up. I noticed things were really starting to shift. I'm like two weeks on like a decade of this dynamic. I'll take that. Like that math works out pretty nicely. And that's when it started to blow my mind is like, there's something here. And I was coaching people. So, you know, they're coming to me with relationship issues. So I'm like, why don't I try to introduce them to these ideas? And I'm seeing much their relationships weren't, it wasn't their marriage. So like, it wasn't, you know, as many decades of built up stuff and they're seeing even faster turnaround. I was a really extreme situation at work. I'm doing it there. And it's like immediate turnaround. Like there's something really meaty here. And that's when the book sort of presented itself. Like I was writing for Inc at the time, like this is way too much for a little article. Um, It's not 800 words. So um, much like with do a day, there came a point where it was impossible to not write the book. Um, that process was wildly different between the two, but yeah, the book presented itself to me and I didn't have a choice.
0: You mentioned that the, I'm so much in there. I want to dive in, but before I forget, yeah. you mentioned that the two were different. So, so different. How were they different?
1: Do a day had been in me for years. I'd already been coaching people on it. I, I basically like, I knew what the book was before I ever put, you know, proverbial pen to paper. And that's why like the first day I sat down to write it, I wrote, I don't know, like 60, 70 pages, Um, you know, not all of them made the final, but I wrote a material amount of the book in one sitting that first day. This was wildly different because I hadn't been living it for seven years. And like, I hadn't already been well-versed in how to talk about it. This one is like, no, I'm in the middle of this now. I've now read like one and a half of the books that this counselor has guided me on. Like I got way more research to do I'm still in the midst of what's going on with my wife. I'm still seeing how things are playing out with my clients. I don't even know if maybe I'm just a fool and like six months after you try it, then it falls apart and it's worse. So there's a lot more studying research, living firsthand to see. There was much deeper understanding I had to do. So I ended up reading 10 or 12 books on the subject. Um, I keep looking to my left where they're all stacked up, um, yeah, there was it it wasn't a book that just wrote itself. And my jaw was also way fuller than it was the first time around. And I was now like two and a half years of into this weekly commute to Atlanta and I was exhausted. Um, so I didn't have the same energy. Like I'd get on a plane and I'd write, write, write and do a day it was done in like three months. I get on a plane, open my computer, and I'm like out cold with <laughs> fifty seventy five one hundred. I just didn't have it in me. So Whenever I had time to write, it was really like I had to get back into the content, and then I ran out of time. So it took twelve to fifteen months probably to actually write. Whereas Do a Day was like three months of writing and twelve months of editing. So this was a just really, really different process. Um, Yeah, and I didn't. There were a lot of times where I didn't feel as connected with the material. I think because it was so so detached from a steady stream of writing. And then it just gets in your head is like, am I doing this right? Or am I, you know, is this resonating? It leaves room for doubt. Maybe I should just abandon this project. I'm not getting it done. Am I good enough? Not that I thought those things, but, you know, (laughs) (laughs) someone else might. Yeah. Um, It
0: would be natural for a writer to think that. Yes. That's how we say that.
1: (laughs) And it was actually like, so what it took was I wrote that huge chunk of do a day on a flight from California to Boston, you know, like seven hours on a plane, nothing else to do. I was doing a talk down in New Jersey and I chose, I chose to take the train. So I had like two, seven or something hour train rides. And, um, that's where 50, 75, 100 went from 50% done to complete manuscript to send to my editor. So that was two days. Um, but I needed that. That's I've learned. That's how I write is I really do need to clear the decks. And I mean, so much of of your work and you got to start finishing behind you, like I'm excited for that as I embark on book three. Um, you can't just have fits and starts. When people are like, you just have to write every day and then you wake up and you have a book. I'm like, yeah, maybe. If you're writing short stories, that might work. But for me, my brain doesn't work that way. I do need to flow with my ideas. So know your brain and then structure around that. But once you know that structure you actually have to defend it and live it or your book's never going to get finished. And that's where I was struggling with the second book.
0: Yeah, that's the important piece there. And just as a sidebar, I used to have a client who she would get backed up in writing. And it was like, to a T, it's like, we just need to schedule a long flight for you. She did a lot of Mm -hmm. traveling anyway. So it's just like, next long flight, you'll get it taken care of. And inevitably, she'd end up being super productive because she was one of those people that can get on the plane and write. I am not that guy, right? Um, But- But you know that. Yeah, I know that, right? And so it's really important to know who you are and then build it around it. But the firewalling of a book is super hard. And the other thing that I want to address here for for folks is that it's really um, normal for folks to write that first book and it just flows. Yeah. And then you kind of, it's not that you write yourself out of steam, but like that, those are all your hits. That's all your sort of like the stuff you've been playing for years and years and years. And then you get to the second book and it's like a new album of new music you haven't actually toured with and played with. I know I'm using a, you know, a different creative thing for that, but that's actually really common to write yourself out of that first book. Right. And then your second one, you're like, okay, Yeah. so I got a lot of living to do um, because I, I think some of the best nonfiction books are those ones that have come from. They're like a distillation of lived experience, yeah. Um, backed with research and and you know field testing, but like you got to refill that well sometimes, yeah. and it can be challenging. So, yeah. um, I know a lot of sophomore writers are like, I don't have anything to say, and I was like, and that's normal, <laughs> right? Yeah,
1: yeah. And my, I mean, my first book was so much of my identity, um, it, I mean, it really is, and it was still cooking. And I didn't expect that. So, like, I was like, you know, this will be like two, three months and it'll fizzle out and then I'll go on to the next one. Um, And it was still like very full on. And I started doing a podcast with it. And so, like, my days actually, a lot of my free time when I would have written when I was doing the first book were now taken up with activities from the first book that I thought I'd be over. I mean, I'm still doing that stuff today. So do a day has lived on really well and that's awesome. And I'm very thankful for that. And because it's my identity, I feel like I'm ignoring my child if I don't give it that space. And so, yeah, the, the new kid that wanted to come over and play, I was like, you know, here's go watch a show. You sit sit down and watch a show. Like, you know, it's like the first child gets all the focus and the second kid is just kind of left to free. I was a fourth, so I don't even know what I was left with, but, um, (laughs) Yeah, like free-range children. So it, it's it's different. It's very different. And it, what's important is not getting in your own head about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are two – I think this is true for other forms of expression, but I'll say writing specifically. Yeah. There's what I like to call um, explanatory writing, and then there's exploratory writing. Mm. And the explanatory writing is do a day you, You've got it in your head. You're just going to get it out and explain what's in your head. Everything's yeah. good to go. Yeah. It's, it's fast – Like it comes out, you get in flow and all that sort of whatnot. Exploratory writing is when you're having to sort of figure it out as you write it and think through and things like that. And all the false starts and you sit and you show up at wherever you write and four words come out and you're like, what the hell? Right. Um, This used to be 4,000. Yeah. Um, Now it's four. What am I doing with myself? And so for sure. And your work can slide because there are sometimes you're just probing and fighting in the darkness with your words. Then you hit that streak. And then it comes out, you get it, and then you run until you run out again. And then, yeah, it's super hard. And and you're right that keeping momentum with your book in a way that matches your creative style, like that's the trick.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, this my third book's a, it's a business book, it's interview based, and I've got a pretty hard deadline. I'm so it's like it's not from a publisher. It's from there's some big promotion lined up this summer, and I. And need to have it done by then because mm-hmm. it'd be a huge missed opportunity otherwise. Um, and that's I'm struggling with that, not because of me. Like I'm primed to write it, but I gotta get other people to sign on and then sign releases, like companies. So you gotta get releases and stuff. So like I could have that done probably in like two, three weeks. It's more explanatory. Like I know the story, I know the cases, but I don't have the right to speak about them legally yet. So I gotta work on that part. That's a whole different Kind of blockage.
0: Yeah, um, seems like you like making your life harder as a writer, in a sense. So, like, I'm going to take on a new challenge this time.
1: Yeah, it counts as going to the gym. It it absolutely counts. Out. Yeah, yeah.
0: Just working out. Um, All righty. So we've we've mentioned the book, um, the fifty, seventy five, one hundred solution, and um, or we sort of talked around it. So. Um, it's got such a great setup that I'm not going to butcher by setting it up for you. So um, <laughs> if you want to go ahead and let us know what the 50, 75, 100 is, then we can yeah. sort of dive into some of the the meatier topics around it. Not yeah. not that the framework itself is not meaty.
1: But give no, me but, but the number, I mean, this is the, the worst part of the book, hopefully, is the title. It's, everyone's like, what is it called? That's terrible. It's about math. It's not. Um, so, you know, I mentioned like, the 50-50 feeling in relationships, that's that's what the 50 is in the title. It's, it's all about proportions or percentages of a relationship, like from 50% to 100%. So the 50 is where most of us start. It's us against them, like your half, their half. Most people will accept, like, I own my half, you own yours. I can't control it, I don't have agency, I don't have influence, and that's really unsettling. That's where a lot of the frustration and anger and headbutting comes from is because it is, it's us against them. And that's why like in negotiations, a lot of the outcomes, even though this is not what they teach in negotiation classes and whatnot, is you split the baby. Like, you end up like, you want four, you want two, we're going to do three. And it's like, well, okay, neither of you actually got what you want. Why is that better? Um, Because it's half. And so, you know, that's the 50 50 world and it's not working. And I should say, this is not about romantic relationships, not about business relationships, not about any kind of relationship explicitly. It's about all relationships, whether they're long term or fleeting. Like, I had someone who read the book who texted me, like, I just used it at the gas station. And like, I'm pretty sure it's not because he was filling his pump next to his boss or his wife or something. Like, just someone he interacted with. Um, so any kind of relationship, that's 50-50. That's the easy part. 100, the other easy one, is that's the whole thing. And it's trying to get to 100% better. And I'm going to come back to the word better because that can mean different things. 75 is, is where it gets more complicated. And that's where actually the meat of the whole thing is. What I found, this whole like enlightenment that I had, is relationships are not 50-50. Within each of us, we're split in half again. So the reality is there's four quarters to a relationship. So four twenty-five percent pieces. And the idea is that you end up having your half plus half of them. So that's where the 75 comes from. You've got control and influence over three quarters of the problem. And that comes from this realization that Half of you is your actions, what you're freely choosing to do. I freely chose to wear a black shirt. You're wearing kind of an orange kind of shirt. Um, it's very nice, but like we chose that irrespective of the other one. Like free, you know, free, free will. The other half of us is our reactions. Um, you know what what we're doing in response to what we're taking in in the world, and in a relationship, my reactions are in response to you, and your reactions are in response to me, which is where. I suddenly realize I have influence over you because if I give you a different version of me to react to, whether you want to or not, you're having different stimulus coming in. You are going to put different stimulus back out. So now I'm not so helpless. Now I'm not so you know, lacking control and influence. I can't make you do anything, but I can certainly give you a different basis to make the decision on how to react. It doesn't mean you will. But it suddenly gives me less of that feeling of like, what am I going to do? I can't, you know, I can't do anything to change this. It's like, oh, now I see the mechanism to like make my way in and and try to help. The question is how, and that's what these Buddhist principles that I I talk about in the book are, but just recognizing I actually do have an ability here is not helpless or hopeless, And if I can give my wife, my coworker, my boss, my brother, my whoever, this person I'm interacting with, a different version of me to react to, I'll get a different version of them back, which means I'm going to have a different version to react to, which means I don't have to work so hard anymore because now they're not attacking me as much. So I'm going to give them an even better version of me. And they're going to give it. And so it becomes this virtuous cycle, hopefully, Mm -hmm. that leads to 100% better. And and I say, hopefully, and I say, you know, better in quotes, because better might mean the relationship needs to end. Better might mean you don't speak to that person again, or it might mean that things are not okay, but you're not going at each other anymore. Like where you are, where you are right now, if that's not good enough, better is something more than that in the right direction. And, you know, I do say like there's situations like violence, mental illness, um, alcohol or, or other substance abuse, like there's genuine situations where I wouldn't say, just keep at it and you'll turn them around one day and it's okay that, oh, they're cutting you with a knife. That's okay. Just give them a different version of you to interact with. I don't think that's the right answer. But what can you do to protect yourself and extricate yourself in a way that doesn't have them coming after you or doesn't leave a lasting impact on your sense of yourself? That's better. So better for relationship doesn't mean everything's fine. Like I say in one of the cases, like we did not walk around skipping, holding hands, you know, like staring into each other's eyes. People still break up. Families still get divorced. You know, it's like conscious uncoupling. And Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin have made fun of for talking about it that way. But you know what? For their kids, that's better. And having two parents who aren't in love anymore and don't really want to be together anymore, conscious uncoupling's better than that. So there's all kinds of degrees in the spectrum of what 100% looks like, and what your definition of better is. But it doesn't mean like just stick through it and everything will be fine if you just keep smiling. Like it's not as simple as that.
0: Yeah, and and what's thank you for that. And what's super important here is better is functionally tied to um, less suffering or more happiness. Yes. that's what we mean by by um, better. Yeah. And so, if you're in a situation and you change the the your behavior, you change your responses such that there is less suffering, yeah, then that's better or that there's more happiness. and And thankfully, a lot of times, or maybe sometime. well, thankfully, there are those occasions where we can change it, and things are more happiness in the sense yep. of the relationship' stronger, you're getting along. Other times, there's just less suffering because you're not talking, right?
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, that could be part of why in Buddhism, it's not about more happiness. It's about less suffering is recognizing like there are, you know, if, if, uh, you know, what's going on in Australia, these fires, like increasing happiness for people who are going through that. That's one way to look at it. I may not be able to, can I do something that lessens their suffering? You know, if I give to the red cross and that helps someone who's in you know a terrible situation right now, they're not happy. I mean, maybe, but that's not why I'm doing it. It's like, oh, here I made you cookies. Like, no. What you're trying to do is reduce their suffering, and if they may become happy as a result of that, but if you put reduce suffering first, happiness eventually is a place you can get to. Um, so, I, you know, it's it's putting that first and foremost, which may mean the different version of yourself is the one who's not there anymore. But how you are not there anymore that different version of you is the non-existent one, how that happened. You know, it's like um, you have a relationship that ends. Ghosting is a thing, right? Like that's <laughs> that's become more of an issue these days. I think it's ridiculous. To break up with someone is one thing. It can be very hard. It can hurt their feelings and whatever. It doesn't mean that you should stay with them. It doesn't mean that you're not right. But how you do it could, you know, are they going to grow from this? Are they going to realize Are they going to wonder forever? Are they going to stalk you because they're still holding on to something? Or do you end something in a way you give them a different version of you that's not there anymore, and you do it in a way that lets them respect themselves and grow and understand, no, if I say this, then you'll take me back. No, it's like, look, it really is over. This is why it's not going to work. And I'm sorry if you don't feel that, but this can't go on. Like How you extricate yourself can set you up for a different kind of better than you would have had otherwise.
0: And for those who um, whose age may prevent them from knowing what ghosting is, it's where you're in a relationship with someone and the other person just completely stops responding to any channel anywhere and yeah. just can't be found, just disappears off of the digital, physical, and social grid. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's what we're talking about there. And it's apparently a thing that I think the young people do it right. all
1: over the place. People <laughs> right? do it in job interviews. My first editor for this book actually did it to me um yeah so i sh- I should have stuck with the same editor from do a day, but uh, which I did in the end, but yeah, he just stopped responding um
0: yeah, I don't understand it, thing. but like it's a it's a thing that people do, so
1: yeah
0: um, and because they are looking for the fast path right to um reduce suffering, but it's really sort of a lopsided scenario in that case yeah,
1: yeah, you know, um, one of the things that hit me in all this is. So often, like in the 50-50 view, we feel like someone's intentionally just doing this to us. You know, like when I was feeling these things about my wife, it's like, she's just trying to hurt me. And there's just again. If someone's hurting you, like they don't generally wake up that morning and they're like, you know what? I'm just thinking of what what should I do today? Let me find Brian and just be a jerk to him. Now, maybe they actually said that, but what's going on inside of them is something totally different. That's a person who's got hurt, who's got trauma, who's got something that they're unsettled with, and it's probably some form of insecurity. And for whatever reason, they believe that hurting you will reduce their suffering. And they're confused about that because maybe it gives them a sense of power. Maybe they were abused as a child, and so abusing you makes them feel like they're back in control. I mean, there's any number of dysfunctions that can be at play here. It's not simply and blindly just to hurt you. It's because they're trying to do something for themselves. They're trying to hurt less, and they're misunderstanding the situation. And so that's one where, you know, in understanding that, it can be very hard to give someone a different version of you, especially if they're hurting you. But if you're able to feel less attacked and less intentionally singled out, it makes it a lot easier to have the clarity to give them a different version of you, to walk away, to walk away safer, like any number of things. When you're in the midst of feeling like this is an intentional threat on you, is very hard to bring yourself to do. It's hard mentally to get there.
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing that popped up for me as I was reading through the framework here is it's kind of like that quip, like, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? yeah. Right. in that there are sometimes we get so dug into the 50-50 because we're going to be right, or we're the person who is harmed, or we were the person that like so on and so forth. And so we maintain a position that ends up maintaining the hurts, maintaining mm-hmm. the suffering.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas there are plenty of times, and my wife used to get super mad at me because I was like, you know what, like this is, <laughs> Angela sometimes would be, would we'd be in the midst of something. but like, you know what, like I actually don't care about being right. Like yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong if we can be done with this, right? Yeah. Um, and I get where she was coming from in the sense of like, no, you really don't understand. Yeah. What I was saying, you're just saying you do, so we, so we're not fighting. But yeah. there's another point where I was like, I'm not entrenched in my position enough that like yeah. I can say that I can't say I see you on that one, right? Yeah. And now, granted, it took a while to get to where I can say like, oh, I get where you're coming from with that. Yeah. Right, I see you. I'm not, I don't need for you to fight for you to see my position, right? Yeah. I'm willing yeah. to see your position, understand what's going on, and move towards, you know, move towards better, right? Yeah. Um, versus being like, no, you have to see what I see too, or you have to validate my situation right. and what I need to go on. It's like, I, I it's not really. <laughs> I really yeah. don't, right? I'd rather be us, I'd rather for us to be in a position where we're not causing suffering more yes, than to be in a position to where we're in this tug of war about whose perspective is validated or not validated or seen or repeated in the right way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And blindly acquiescing isn't necessarily going to get you there. Like, you know, my wife's telling me about something and if you're like, not that I've done this, but if you're on your phone and you know, you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, what, well, you're you're not fighting her on it. You're listening, quote unquote, to it, but you're not really. And and if she sees that, it's like, are, do you even hear what I said? And even if I can parrot everything back, I'm clearly demonstrating that I'm not fully taking it in. And like you said, like people sometimes just want to be heard. Like no one wants their feelings invalidated. And for you to just be like, yeah, okay, fine, I'm not going to argue with you, is not the same thing as I get it. You know, it's like that little difference is like people just want to be heard. And maybe that's their issue that they've dealt with all their life is they don't feel heard. And so, like, there's lots of different strategies that are taught in a very 50-50 mindset. And none of them was working for me. And that's when I started to realize, like, I have to go beyond that. And I'm not perfect. There's plenty of times where I haven't. And it was actually it was in one of those moments. The two weeks later thing was because I screwed up. Only I realized it and I called it out. And my wife came over and gave me a hug. And that's when I was like, there's no way two weeks ago, if this exact situation played out and I realized it and called it out and apologized, she would have kept screaming at me. So just the fact that like she appreciated my recognition and my acceptance and my apology, genuine apology, not one of these, I'm sorry that you felt this way or I'm sorry that um, that was a sign to me that it's starting to create a different version of reactions from her.
0: Yeah. It also reminds me, and this happens in um, race and equity conversations, where there's been, I think, an evolution of language, where it's shifted from, I'm sorry that what I said, like, what has it, I'm sorry that you were hurt by what I said. Yeah. That's right. an apology. Right. Yeah. And I think it's now transcended to, I'm sorry that what I, that, um what I said hurt you or that you would say, I'm sorry that I hurt you by what I said. Right. Yeah. Where you own the hurt in the words, not yeah. not acknowledge that they felt a certain way about what you said. It's right. like, no, that actually caused some suffering. What you your actions caused some suffering. Yeah. And if you can't acknowledge that, then it's hard to have a conversation going forward.
1: Yeah. Right? Completely. Completely. I mean it's like I, I always try to add You know, if that genuinely wasn't my intention, if it was, shame on me. But if it wasn't, I try to throw that in. And it's like, you know, not only am I I sorry for that, I genuinely was not intending that. I I had no idea that that was going to be so hurtful. I'm like really showing, no, I, I fully understand this. And this was not my intention. And you did not deserve that. It was that sort of thing. Versus, you know, like, if you're just like, I'm sorry you felt that way, or it's, it's I, they're not coming away, understanding your intention, which actually is for me, like, that's an important thing for me is feeling misunderstood in life. And when someone reacts negatively, when I intended good, it doesn't mean I delivered it well, or it doesn't mean I saw all of the potential consequences and I missed the negative from it. But I feel like for me, I started to realize this, like, I don't feel heard. Like growing up maybe you know being one of four, like I didn't feel heard. And that pattern has repeated itself. And so that's a trigger for me. And so I've added into my apology just trying to put out like that was not my intention. Just to make a little bit of space for feeling heard myself. So it's not just about like going back to acquiescing. It's not just about just giving in to them you can still have valid feelings, like your feelings in this matter too. And that was that was one of the things I was struggling with is when I went to the therapist, it was like, how do I just cope? How do I just bite my lip? How, it, all of it was about eating my emotions, eating my pain, just to keep her satisfied or to keep her from making it worse. And that's not a winning strategy either. So I started to realize like, even in trying to see her side, even in making space for that, even understanding what she might want, there's still room for what I care about. And that, that was really, it was a really nice way to think about it because I had felt so unheard my, most of my life. Um, yeah, it's like the more I think about it and the more I go with it, I do find more reasons why I, I can't really see this not working in the situations where I've employed it. Um, you know, different kinds of outcomes and what working means, but I at least feel better myself in what's going on with that even if everything's not fine in the end and that's yeah. worth something.
0: Great. Well, we mentioned sort of the the framework, the theory, sort of what what's under it, as it were. Um, yeah. And it can be useful to think about it. And I'm glad you did it in the book where you went through specific kinds of relationships to show how it might work. Um, and one thing that intrigued me was thinking about this is that it seems like conversations like this between adults who are trying to make the situation better have one sort of arc to them. Mm-hmm. But then there are kids who may not be able to communicate at the same level or, um, it, you know, we may not be able to have this this sort of structured conversation. So yeah. how does it work with them?
1: Um. So this one's really uh, it's it's a funny one. It's not my strategy, but it's it's getting at the same thing. There's this uh, pediatrician named Harvey Karp, um, and I mentioned him in the book. That he talks about. He, he has a series, Happiest Baby on the Block, Happiest Toddler on the Block. Um, he hasn't tackled teenagers yet. That's that'll be a bestseller when it comes out, I'm sure. But um, he talks for toddlers specifically. He brings up this idea of like caveman speak because and he goes through the biology behind it why little kids brains they basically get, when they're upset they get overloaded just flooded with thoughts and emotions they can't process and they can't verbalize yet which only makes them more frustrated so their brain actually it's like it's like a kernel panic like their brain just can't deal with what's going on and that's why they have these terrible meltdowns and i've been really lucky like my son's generally been awesome like generally an easy kid but he definitely went through stuff like my wife used to call me at work and and i'd have to like hold the phone away from my head you can just hear this like ungodly screaming in the background and it's like a different kid because something frustrated him that he couldn't communicate and it just triggered everything so what carp talks about is like you basically you get down in their level and you talk like a caveman and you just you just like speak directly to their frustration like you're not happy you don't like this or like you want, you just let them understand you're heard. And you know what that is? It's giving them a different version of you to interact with instead of the parent who won't let them have the chocolate or watch the show or whatever it is. You're just getting down and recognizing like, this is not what you want. And so we didn't talk about the Buddhist principles. The first one is happiness seeking. that's what we ultimately all do. And that was my comment about like, they didn't just wake up this morning to hurt you. There's something they want and they may perceive you to stand in the way. And we all do this. Kids too. They just may not be able to communicate it. So you're getting down on their level and you're speaking to them on the, the different version of you you're giving them is about happiness seeking. It's recognizing there is happiness they seek and they're frustrated because they can't have it. And don't worry about anything else right now. Like they can't process anymore and they don't care about that. They just need to know that you get that the thing they're struggling to communicate, someone understands it and they don't need to communicate it. And it's wild how quickly just like sounding like Captain Caveman uh, for people who are old enough to know who that is just immediately takes the thing down. It's, it's pretty cool. And it does work at different ages is like, just recognize that, you know, they don't have the same kind of freedoms that adults might have. And they want that, especially different age sets. Like my son's preteen and he's starting to like, he's almost battling with himself. Like, is he a little boy or is he a teenager? And there's moments where he's kind of like almost rude to us. Cause he's just like exercising that independence and trying to feel cool. But then like, you know, he'll be snuggly 20 minutes later and that's a weird spot. Like he doesn't understand it. He's not consciously choosing that. And so he did something last night that I thought was super rude and I was not happy with him about it. I didn't scream at him. Like it could have, I think my parents probably would have when I was his age, but I was just like, you know, that, that was pretty rude. I know you want to do this. Right. So I'm like, right back to the caveman kind of thing. Like he's like, yeah, he's, he was trying to pretend he was a DJ and was doing a radio show. And my wife and I were talking, and he just starts like shouting over us to announce the next song. It's like, you could have just waited for us. But instead of getting into what he should have done or why this is bad, or I was like, you know, you wanted to do that. And then immediately he's like, yeah, I really wanted to just keep going with it. It's like, just give them space to recognize, like, that he wasn't just acting out. He wasn't just trying to be rude. He wasn't just trying to keep us from talking to each other. He wanted something. We all do. I wanted, to, I wanted to finish my sentence. My wife wanted to maybe wanted to hear what I had to say. Like, we all just want something. And when we get in the way of that coming out, we often react.
0: Yeah, that's really powerful because I was thinking – that has me thinking about an interaction that I saw with a family um, at a restaurant where you're eating it. And I'm not going to go into what can seem like parent shaming and things like that. But um, what I noticed is that most – the volume of the table was completely related to how much the mom was on the phone, Mm -hmm. right? The more she got sucked into the phone, the louder the table got, (laughs) and when she – interacted in different ways. The table got quiet because everyone was getting seen and heard and everything like that. And again, yeah. I'm not beating her up. I'm just like, you know, there are people there that are needing to be seen in different ways. Yeah. And the every most of the interactions are about how, what level do we need to go until we get attention, until we are seen. And then, okay, we're good until we're not seen. And then it's yeah. this pendulum that's going on. So again, yeah. I think that's just one of those things is like, Maybe it's caveman speak or maybe it's just, you know, interacting with someone at the level um, rather than just um, trying to minimize the interactions. And interestingly, this ties to... Um, some work Angela and I have done on positive boundaries Mm. um, in the sense where normally when we think about boundaries, we think about pushing people away and firewalls and things like that. But there's a positive version of that where you're making space for people, where you're making Mm -hmm. space for things. Right? We normally think from things when we think boundaries. And a lot of times what i've what i've seen in a lot of the interactions is a lot of the conflict happens because people aren't making space for people they're not mm-hmm. you know really saying like i'm here i'm wanting to engage i'm doing the things i hear you i see you we're doing this intentional thing together yeah. as opposed to always going from negative boundary to coping negative boundary to coping and so it's just something to think about as a you know way of practicing some of this is maybe the way you practice 75 or 100 for people listening is creating positive boundaries that create a situation where people um, do have that time to see that you actually see where they're coming from and that you see their happiness and that you're negotiating in, in lighthearted And I want to say this about negotiation, because there are certain words, especially when we men say it, that can have a certain tone to it. So negotiating, influencing, Mm -hmm. um, controlling, like all those types of things can have that very hard side to it. But when we say negotiating, it could also mean like accommodating. It can be nurturing these different types of things out of it. So just something to think about of a way of of implementing some of this.
1: Yeah, I really I I like this positive boundary idea because that actually like that's essentially what you're creating is you're making space for their happiness to matter too, and to not be a threat to it. Like whether you're, you're stepping out of the way of them achieving their happiness or actually taking their hand and helping them get to it. Either of those is a form of positive boundary, you're, you're bringing them in and to seeing that you're not, you're not the barrier. Um, You know, there, there's some kinds of happiness. Like I describe it as a, the last cookie problem because everything's got to be about cookies for me. Um, We, if we both want the last cookie, We can't both have it. And, you know, the thing you tell a child is like, well, share it like, okay, that's that's nice, but we're still both not getting our cookie. So there are some situations where we really do stand in each other's way and there isn't a path to us both getting 100 percent of what we want without the other Mm -hmm. one losing something that is very real. But maybe there's something else that one of the people values more. And so, like, it may not be about this cookie, but maybe it's about the other thing and if you're if you're just butting has no I want the cookie I want the cookie you're never going to get there and insert any number of things in place of that cookie, um, and, and you'll find like there are situations where we genuinely stand in each other's way and if we continue to interact in that place where we're we're using the more traditional sense of boundaries like I got to keep you out of my my area here's a fence versus like well why don't you come in and let's figure it out and if it means you get the cookie then that's what it means, and I, I had a situation at work. Um, in my, my old job where we're going to be building out the rest of the floor. We had outgrown our space and we were taking over the rest of the floor. And during the construction, some number of people had to go up to a temporary space and it was really bad. Like our offices are awesome. It's an old law firm. It was really like dark and it's just very separated. We were open floor plan, really good sense of community. So this was, this was rough and they told us it would be six weeks. I'm like, it's going to be six months. It's construction and six weeks doesn't make sense to begin with. Um, And so it was every department went around and just said why they can't do it. Each of them was like, this is my fence, and there's a cookie inside, and you can't have it. And so I looked at it as like, well, what what do we get by doing this? Like, my team happens to have the right number of people, give or take a couple, that we could actually make this work. Could we, you know, we're all going to be split up now. Could we do communal lunches every Friday? Is there a budget in the construction build for that so that, like, we can bring people together? Can we start, we've been talking about doing these office-wide events. Could we start doing that now to give people an excuse for coming into the space and being together? Like, what can we do to, you know, not quite share the cookie but lessen the blow? And then, you know what, when we come back into the space, my team's been in this weird kind of um this weird part of the the office we're gonna have this new area built out is that claimed yet no it isn't okay well is it possible for us to fit in there yeah actually that makes perfect sense so it's just through that willingness like we all start to work through it and then everybody who ended up being happy and little did i know my team actually liked being split up for a little while and not having the noise and the thrum of, plus the free lunches was also really good um but But that's the point. Everyone went in like, oh, are we going to be the ones that have to move up to the 20-whatever floor to like, oh, yeah, we're getting free lunch. And yeah, we're going to be in the new space that they're building out once it's done. And it's just a different way of seeing it that if we all just sat there and said no, we'd never have a conversation about that.
0: Yeah, you know, that really reminds me of, and this is from Buddhism actually, is the difference between pain and suffering. Right, and this is an important point because there are some pains that are they're painful. But what suffering is is when we add the human spiritual element to it, the su- mm-hmm. the emotional, the story. Yeah. That's what we would say in our in our. When we add the story to it, when we add the additional drama to it, that's where we get suffering from, right? Yeah. And so I think, you know, in that situation that you just gave, there was a certain amount of pain, right? Yeah. The pain of change, the pain of moving. So on top so forth. That was going to be there no matter what happened, yeah. right? Yeah. But what you were able to do was to reduce the suffering that was layered on top of said pain, right? Yeah. So that it was just one of those blips, right? And I think when you hoard – I mean, and, and granted – it. it Suffering expectations is where suffering comes from in the Buddhist philosophy, anyways, right? Yeah. So, when you yes. hold on to this expectation that this is my little fiefdom, this is my spot, we are the people that shouldn't have to move, and you bake all that in, that's where you get so entrenched in a position that you can't but help create yeah. suffering,
1: all right? Yeah, you asked me before about things I would, um, that I've now seen like I should have included this. You're kind of touching on the one thing that I did have and took out and added and took out. And that's non attachment Um, because that, that is like the core, the basis from suffering, turning into pain as we attach to things. And I actually talk about it and do a day without naming it as such. But the reason why I didn't include it and I really struggle with this is that's not the only fundamental concept in Buddhism that actually could apply here. Like there are a number of things that, and I, I actually like, Tibetan Chodron talks about it really brilliantly. She's like, it's like a buffet. You can keep going up and taking more and more and you don't have to take it all at once and you can take more of something you like, and which I'm sure Buddha didn't have that thought, but um, it's a really, like, it makes sense. So my point is, I, I don't know where to draw the line. I know these three core things fit very squarely together and are the specific things to put into action, but there's a lot more to it. And so I encourage people, like, I recommend that book wholeheartedly. I link to it in mine. Um, whenever people ask me, like, what's your favorite book, they think I would just end up plugging my own. Um, but I don't. Like, I, I I think this is worth reading. And non-attachment, really taking that idea in, can be just unbelievably empowering for your life.
0: Yeah. Um, what's super – well, so two things. and We're going to veer a little bit philosophical, but we can do that on this show, right? Is what makes Buddhism and Stoicism both so endearing – is that they are meta philosophies that have incorporated the best of the ideas of yeah. the their spiritualities, religions, and and philosophies around them. So yeah. stoicism keeps coming up time and time again because it is that sort of, you know, um, super evolved theory. <laughs> That continually adapts and, and incorporates other things. Buddhism is the same way, and you're right; yeah. it's, it's exactly taking some of these core spiritual theories, or, and and think and and giving that particular context to it. And so, yeah. um, that's that's one thing. And you know, it's also tricky. And we mentioned this in the green room: is that you also have to be careful in that you're not a born Buddhist. Right In the sense of we didn't grow up in a culture where Buddhism is the dominant cultural religion and and things like that. So, there very much is this sensitive balance between how much are we just appropriating, all right? To what degree, and and we don't have to answer that here, but it's a sticky one, and I feel you on this one, bro. Like, to what degree is adopting a universal spirituality that comes from a particular culture appropriation – Versus just seeing like wow that's got a lot of truth to it that I'm going to hold on to. It's yeah. super
1: tricky. Yeah, yeah, and I mean obviously my intention is not appropriation, and I I try to speak to that that it's more it is more the latter, and I think um, from everything I've seen of Buddhism and Buddhists, it's a it's a place where people are welcome to come in and observe and learn and grow. And because the intention is to reduce the suffering of everyone to exclude someone or say, you don't have a right seems very much at odds with those core principles. Um, and so hopefully that's a community that I haven't, you know, stepped on any toes or anything and appreciates my, what I would say is fairly rudimentary attempt to introduce some concepts there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, appropriation of different cultures, of different mindsets, of different religions, of lots of things, it's a basis for a lot of 50-50 kind of disputes and disruptions and pain uh, or suffering. And um, and I understand where that comes from. I mean, so I'm Jewish. There's a whole Jew-boo group <laughs> out there. I'm not I'm a part of that, um, but I'm married to a Catholic. And so, like, religion and the differences in it comes up a lot for us, um, just understanding that, and and some of the different understandings of the same kinds of things, I think it's super interesting. I don't think it has to be a basis for us to disagree and and not connect, um, but it can be. It's yeah. I mean, like you said, we're not going to solve any of this here, but it is a really meaty spot. There's a few things like that in the book that like I'm not perfect. I don't have a right to say a number of things in the book, like because I haven't lived in those positions. But what I'm trying to do is just. Offer the the idea that these principles can play out in literally any kind of relationship, how they play out, how you use them, what the outcome is, whether that's good enough for that particular situation or maybe there is something far too extreme going on. You know, like I've, I've said before about mental illness or substance abuse or whatever, like there are situations where that's a bridge too far. And I would recommend a different path um, for your safety and for the safety of the other person. But the concepts don't need to be confined to any one group or one space or one type of relationship. I think that's the key piece. And generally, you should have a better flow through your life if you're trying to think of, think of things in this way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also another sort of baked-in thesis here is that the, the area of relationships that we're talking about are ones where there are not such um, such differences in power asymmetries that you actually don't have much control at all or influence in that situation, right? And so there are some we can think of, maybe some police scenarios, maybe military scenarios, maybe
1: like... If you're on trial for your life, yeah. giving the judge a different version of yourself to deal with, like that's a good idea, and you still committed that crime potentially, and if you were found guilty for it, and it's a capital punishment question, like because you were nice and caring and were, you know remorseful, you should be, and it may not change the outcome. Yeah, and so we're talking,
0: again, in that realm, and there may be those things. And I talked to Brian a little bit in the green room about some of those. I'm looking at the time and yeah. saying that we um, – I don't want to hold you hostage much longer, right? Um, you might have to invoke some 75-100 on me. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, that's one of those things. And, again, I had to read that um, – a second time, and that was more because of my, what I was coming into the book with, that I was like, yeah. okay, 100 does not mean the outcome that you want. Yeah. It does not mean necessarily a great outcome, yeah. right? It just means an outcome that has less suffering, right, yeah. than what what the situation already has. And sometimes you're just in those bad situations to where there's a lot of suffering.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah. And lives are at risk. And like, I mean, you, you named a few of them. Um That's why, like, there is no single answer for anything. There are things I think we can take in and grow from and find applications for that help and protect us. And how we navigate our lives and what better, 100, whatever you want to call it is, is not going to be the same in every situation. Um, But I'd still rather have more better in my life across that spectrum than less.
0: Um, Yeah, it's terrible
1: English, but spiritually it's true. More better is better. Right. I guess hopefully the way I used it works better. But yeah, MoBeta. Yeah, Yeah. MoBeta is better.
0: All righty. So as the guest for today's show, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge. So based upon what we've talked about today, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do?
1: I think that everyone has at least one relationship front and center that they can stop and think about what is the happiness that person seeks And if if I can add to it, what's the happiness you seek? A lot of us don't do that. Like you said, is it just to argue and have your point one? Or actually, is it something else? So understanding the happiness that's at play in that relationship and see if there's a way that you can appeal to both of those needs. That's a great starting point. And I'm sure there are issues you face in any number of relationships where a little bit of thought and not just digging in could serve you really well.
0: Brian, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, and I look forward to having a conversation about your new personal development book. Ah, insurance <laughs>
1: development, yes. No, we're never, we're, we won't be talking about that, unfortunately, Charlie.
0: Okay. Um, all right, listeners, so you heard it from Brian. What can you do to find the happiness that's within that person um, that you've maybe been in contention with, or maybe you've just been budding? Like, what do they want? Where are they trying to go? And how can you recognize that so that you get closer or to 100? Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.